Hey everyone, this is Lucas Banyo, an investor at Village Global, and I'm here with my co-host Ian Cinnamon. Welcome to SolarPunk. In this podcast, we cover topics related to space and defense and discuss how technology can contribute to a better and safer world. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global SolarPunk. For quite a while now, Ian and I have been meaning to do an episode on the CCP's strategy on rare earth elements, why they matter, and what this means for the US and the global supply chain. To have this conversation, we're really excited to welcome Nathan Pekarsik today on the show. Nathan is a co-founder of Horizon Advisory, a geopolitical risk startup. His work on industrial competition and supply chain risks have been profiled in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, the Washington Post, and other leading international media. His commentaries on industrial innovation have been published in outlets ranging from TechCrunch to Defense One. In addition, he is also a senior fellow at the Washington, D.C.-based Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Nathan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Thrilled, thrilled to chat about some uh, critical minerals today. Amazing. Well, Nathan, we've been very excited to have a conversation on this topic. Um, maybe to just kick us off uh, to set, up, set set the stage for the audience, could you give some context on what are these rare earth elements that we're going to be discussing today and why did they matter? Yeah, so it's a, a family of 17 um, periodic elements that make up this family of rare earth metals. Um, sometimes there are a couple others thrown in, but it's a core group of about 17, and they have industrial, commercial, as well as strategic importance um, that owes to the fact that they're incorporated into a vast array of everyday products. So the iPhones we make our phone calls on, um, medical equipment that we need to run our hospitals on a day-to-day basis, um, and increasingly important because of the shift toward electrification um, and transportation. So electric vehicles rely on rare earth permanent magnets, um, as well as as rare earth inputs into EV batteries. And we sometimes hear that these rare earths will play or already play as big of an international strategic role as oil did in the past. Um, Are those analogies fair? I think in one perspective, they're they're certainly fair because these inputs are going to have a a key industrial role as we develop um, moving forward into renewable energies. So they're going to also have a similar role in terms of the input to transportation. I think they sort of miss the mark, these analogies, to some extent, when you think about the, the industry that we're talking about, the distribution of the material um, and the maturity of the sector. So I think one thing that you miss if you compare it to oil is that um, this is still a relatively immature and not necessarily global transparent market the way that the oil markets function today and, and certainly as they did as they as they developed. So I think this, this industry is um, a bit different, almost a, a wild west compared to a global transparent oil market. Um, and I think there's a lot of risk latent in that reality that you, you might sort of gloss over if you think that we're just shifting from oil to um, this new, different, global, transparent market. It's not quite the same thing. It's still um, sort of littered with a lot of smaller players and um, a less um, equal distribution of, of knowledge and technology relevant for, for making the transition to where these inputs are, are more broadly used. So will you help us understand, Nathan, the kind of broader supply chain around these rare earth uh, minerals? 
like where where are they mostly coming from? Uh, what are the issues with the supply chain? What does the backlog look like if there is any, et cetera? So a common phrase that people use to map out the rare earth supply chain is talking about everything from mines to magnets. So the extraction of the rare earths from the physical mines through the processing that creates rare earth permanent magnets that then go into downstream use cases, whether that's an MRI machine or an EV um, battery. That distribution certainly is um, somewhat, it, it shifts as you move along that spectrum from, from mines to magnets. So there's a decent amount of global distribution of these goods um, that can be extracted. So there are a lot in China. There also are a lot in in Greenland um, and Afghanistan. Um, they're distributed to, to some extent globally. They're even uh, key deposits in the United States and across North America. So at the point of mat mines where, where the rare earths are extracted, there's some global distribution, though there is a high degree of consolidation in China. As you move along the line down toward permanent magnets, the processing, the separation, um, development of metal alloys that then go into magnet production, um, increasingly China consolidates each of those steps and um, there's less and less um, international competition, um, despite the fact that this industry is becoming more and more important. Um, China has been able to consolidate their separation, metal alloy, and permanent magnet production capabilities. So as we move toward the downstream, China increases its consolidation of the global industry. And then I think the, the next step that sort of is outside of this scope of mines to magnets the downstream use cases where uh, an equipment manufacturer buys a, a magnet and incorporates it into a product, um, China also has a, a high degree of consolidation there just owing to the strength of their electronics industry um, and their domestic market. Though that's a, an area where I think increasingly we'll see global pressure applied. Um, and when you look to the U.S. auto industry, as an example, there are efforts being made now to invest in um, permanent magnet as well as rare earth input supply chains that are exist outside of China. Um, so I think this far downstream is where Western markets have a lot of power that's that's yet to be incorporated into this game. Um, otherwise, it's it's a story of Chinese consolidation and control. Nathan, how much of uh, that supply chain is dependent on the location of these rare earth minerals? Are they uh, like where the mines actually are versus kind of downstream of the processing? Like, I understand what you're saying around the consolidation that China's done a great job of uh, kind of a little bit more downstream. In the very beginning, where are these minerals in earth? Where are they? And what impact does that have on who has access and kind of what that supply chain looks like? It definitely has an impact. So transportation costs matter in, in the extraction and then moving things to process them. And there is a, a decent global distribution. Um, regulatory approaches differ in different markets. So, um, you know, it's harder to start a new mine extracting these rare earths in the United States and in North America, um, even though we have endowments in the ground. Um, so China has been able to leverage a decent um, natural endowment to have control downstream of extraction. Um, but even in China, increasingly, they're relying um, on imported rare earths for some of the heavy rare earths, which are the, the more rare, more expensive, more in demand. So um, Myanmar is playing an increasingly important role in China's rare earth industry as a key heavy rare earth import source. Um, and I think as we move forward, 
China's leverage is less going to occur at the point of extraction and more at these later stage points, um, which may provide an opening for um, other global deposits to be explored. But I do think that the the regulatory um, hurdles and um, costs are going to remain a, a valid point of concern um, for anyone who's interested in um, spurring domestic rare earth extraction and, and certainly processing where, where there may be um, environmental and, and other harms to be considered. And Nathan, to my understanding, there are a few metals that are extremely important, such as lithium, cobalt, nickel, that are the materials in batteries that are not technically considered rare earths. How should we think about you know, the importance of those materials compared to rare earths? And what's China's dominance on those? And does this matter? Yeah, so I think um, this broadens the conversation from specifically the narrow set of these 17 rare earth elements uh, and moving into what we might consider critical minerals. Um, and certainly it's the battery metals plus rare earths are make up majority of what we consider critical minerals in the United States, at least. Um, and each of these, I think, should be considered in a similar basket to rare earths. So same type of strategic, industrial, commercial value um, same risks of um, regulation causing um, an uneven playing field globally, and uh, unfortunately, the, the same specter of geopolitical risk coming from Chinese industrial policy plays out in each of these battery and other critical minerals. Um, and that, I think, um, reflects on the reality that Chinese industrial policy has been fairly consistent and deliberate about trying to seize advantage at upstream value, upstream points in, in value chain. So looking where they can extract or process raw materials that feed into and provide advantage for their downstream players. Um, there are often remarks in, in Chinese policy discussions about um, these types of upstream sectors being industries of industries that um, every dollar that's invested or subsidized in these upstream um, sectors produce some multiple downstream in terms of um, dollar of return on investment redeemed by a producer or manufacturer, same for jobs that they produce downstream jobs at, at a multiple rate. Um, and we see this playing out in um, lithium, graphite, cobalt. Um, and then these again map onto the rare earth spectrum where it's not necessarily that China owns all of the resources in the ground, but they've done a superb job of positioning at the separation, processing, refining of what's extracted. So even um, DRC cobalt, where um, you know something around 60% of the world's cobalt's coming out of the ground in the DRC, the vast majority of that goes to um, Chinese refiners, either operating in the DRC or brought into China to be refined um, through offtake agreements and investments and, and straight purchases by, by Chinese downstream producers. Um, and the same goes across all of the battery metals, unfortunately, that um, China has played out this game over the past 10, 20 years of deliberate um, industrial policy subsidization by the government to allow its, its major players to have a, a dominant position, meaning that they're ultimately producing, you know, majority, super majority of global production in, in pretty much all of these goods. 
So Nathan, from, from what you're saying, it sounds like you know China has a very big dominance in, in in the space, and not all of it is due to luck. That just the fact that they happen to have all those rare, rare minerals uh, in the in the country, uh, and that they have been extremely deliberate uh, and extremely strategic in developing those industries. Can you give a little bit more of the history there? What exactly have they done? When did the start? Uh, and you know, what are the major acts that they have taken over the last few decades to get here? Yeah, and I think a rare earth serve as a pretty instructive case for the broader set of critical um, minerals. So um, the the legacy of Chinese industrial policy prioritizing rare earth elements dates back, you know, almost to the founding of um, the the modern regime that that rules China, um, and that has sort of been a basket of government um, policies and preferential modes of support to um, state-affiliated research and to private sector um, actors over the the decades since. So there's been heavy subsidization, um, heavy investment into research and development, um, direct and explicit support for international partnerships to access technology where it's necessary and, and relevant for new and, and different breakthroughs. Um, and then I think in the current era, it's um, been use of um, subsidies. So, you know, explicit state support, tax incentives that um, make it easier for companies to invest capital expenditure, um, to extract goods and regulatory support that allows for um, more expeditious development of new projects and um, operating in areas where um, environmental and, and other degradation is um, less costly um, in terms of dollars, but also in terms of time for operating projects. Um, and then there's continued to be this um, explicit policy of um, seeking pricing power globally. So ultimately, um, the state has acted in a way that has allowed them to um, curtail and compete directly with global efforts to eat away at pricing power. Um, so using um, production quotas to influence global markets. Um, and that works particularly well in, in rare earths, which is sort of a, a fragmented and relatively less transparent international marketplace um, where China has outsized influence, but the, the same sort of toolkit and, and goal, goal of seeking global pricing power and using it to cut off efforts to compete um, is, is deliberately pursued by the, the Chinese Communist Party's industrial policy system. And that's impacted efforts to start and restart relevant industries in the United States. Um, and it's also impacted um, a, a host of different international markets over the past 10, 15 years as well. There's a very, very helpful overview. We talk a lot about kind of the CCP's dominance here. What can the U.S. or other countries be doing to uh, fight back in a sense or to kind of uh, gain a little bit of an advantage here, right? It sounds like a lot of what's been happening has been the result of uh, potentially decades of kind of smart planning on the CCP end. Uh, what can and should we be doing? And then how does technology fit into that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it speaks to the enduring advantages that the West, the U.S., um, like-minded democratic um, allies and partners have in competition with China in general, um, let alone in the fight over these these raw materials that are critical minerals and, and rare earths. I think 
what can be done um, is, you know, increased awareness around these risks is one sort of base level um, increasing attention to the fact that we have this supply chain dependency that carries um, all of these different types of risks, exposure to potential harm for um, corporate market and also for consumer perspective. So increasing awareness and doing so in a, you know, a broad-based way with, with allies and, and partners and um, market-oriented players globally. In, in the United States, I think there's a need for thinking hard about um, how to encourage private sector investment and activity in this space. And I think that likely from a government perspective revolves around tax policy and increasing incentives for, for getting into the space. Um, I think there's a, a suite of risks and threats that are national security specific. So, you know, there are a lot of military end products that require these goods. And in those cases, I think there's a, a need and a sort of a, a fairly urgent need for the government to be a direct player in the market. So, so buying, stockpiling and working with the defense industrial base to eat away at Chinese dominance and the sort of very acute leverage that China has in kinetic scenarios that impact these supply chains. And I think working with allies and partners is is a sort of key part of this because there's only so much that we can do in the United States. Um, and many of our allies and partners have the necessary intellectual property or technology, have their own resource endowments, um, have their own skilled workforces and human capital that can all sort of be pieced together to establish a, a supply chain that can be integrated in, in a way similar to the, the vertical integration that, that China's rare earth and critical mineral um, dominance permits. So I think that's the, the lay of the land and a lot of different moving pieces, um, but I think there's a need for government action in, in certain regards. And then there's a need for um, unleashing the, the power of our private sector, which brings us to the technology point. So I think there are a host of ways that technology can help to solidify and make more resilient these supply chains as they exist today. So we can have better supply chain um, transparency. Um, you can have software improving stockpiles and um, physical goods holding. Um, you can have increased transparency helping the, the movement and trade of these goods. Um, you also can have technology that helps to have breakthroughs for the use cases that, that matter the most. So thinking about new chemical properties and materials, sciences, solutions to some of the, the biggest challenges, um, whether that's in EV drivetrains or in the production of permanent magnets. Um, and I think that's probably the space where um, within at least the rare earth supply chain, where technology and innovation can have the biggest impact at the phase where we're looking at the processing of metal oxides into alloys and the, the production of actual permanent magnets. If there are ways to make those processes more efficient or to change chemical properties that are required there, um, we can make probably big leaps. And unfortunately, I think one of the, the, the tragedies of allowing this sector to be dominated by China is that these upstream nodes have not necessarily been the target of um, American innovation and the, the might of our private sector. Um, but as we sort of peel back and people become more aware and capital becomes more aware and downstream industry becomes more aware of the latent costs that having the supply chain have carried, um, I think that as we have innovative forces targeted on on these nodes of the supply chain, um, we could have breakthroughs that 
um, deliver us more security and resilience, more efficiency in terms of producing things, and, and I think ultimately um, cleaner and safer products than what we rely on right now from from this sector in China, which you know carries a, a ton of economic degradation in China, also carries exposure to forced labor and modern slavery in the Chinese ecosystem. So I think it's you know a a whole host of reasons for moving off of this supply chain and um, technology and innovation promise a, a lot of hope for the future. So Nathan, to zoom in a little bit more on the uh, technology innovation side, a lot of our listeners are um, looking to go start companies, have started companies or investing in companies. So you're speaking to the right audience here. But one of the things that you talk about when you talk about uh, kind of this technology and this innovation is, uh, you know, to me, it sounds a little bit almost more on the research and development, academia, uh, national lab side of things, right? Completely new chemistries, um, you know, uh, new manufacturing approaches and so on. Those are things that, sure, maybe large companies might be able to innovate on. I'm sure there's uh, many grants available for research labs. What kind of an impact can small startups have to actually help here? Right. These are obviously startups that want to grow rapidly, but they need to be able to show commercial traction and viability early on. Are there areas that you think technology companies can help uh, when they're you know, a little bit younger or does it really take kind of this more fundamental level of research before we can get to that? I mean, I think there there exists the research now. I do think that the reality is that as we move into you know innovating in, in hardware and real economy sectors, that it's going to be a, you know, a slightly different business model than the SaaS approach necessarily. So it's not going to you know, necessarily map on the same way to the metrics that you might use um, in you know, disrupting from a software perspective. So I, I would caution that up front that you know, it's a different capital intensity. It's a different um, you know, reaching MVP sort of timeline than, than you might have from software field. But I think there's plenty of technology and innovation that's out there that's been developed in national labs. Uh, the National Energy Technology Lab uh, is one that I think is focused on this a ton. And um, some of that is innovation in, in the chemical side of things. So new ways to um, leach energy out of lithium, new ways to convert uh, coal waste byproducts into rare earths, new ways to take you know breakthroughs in, in chemistry and actually apply them toward downstream products, um, specifically in um, rare earth permanent magnets. Um, then there are also, I think, a whole host of ways that innovation in manufacturing and production. Um, so the development of machine tools and um, actual you know hardware equipment that's used on production lines for these things. So um, right now, if you wanted to be developing a permanent magnet production line, the, the crushers and other machines that you would need to be buying are, at this point are pretty much only made in China. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, you know, a more capital intensive business to be getting into the development of machine tooling and building of machines for these types of production lines. But it is a place where um, if we have interested entrepreneurs who, who want to innovate that I think there will be increasingly a, a domestic and market oriented market for. And Nathan, how big of a role do these rare earth elements play into China's broader, you know, grand strategy and global ambitions? There, there are a couple different ways I think it's um, instructive in understanding Chinese strategy. One is sort of on the surface that this is an acute um, dependency that the rest of the world has on China. And it's one that China is not afraid to 
remind the, the world about, um, remind the United States about, remind United States' allies and partners globally about. So I think it, it's a part of what they might think of as a few different trump cards that they have that they can play as they need to in international politics and um, and certainly in, in military confrontations. Um, so I think it has that that direct role. And then otherwise, I think it's it's also important to understand this as an exemplar of what the Chinese Communist Party and um, Chinese industrial policy is trying to achieve in terms of coercive leverage, in terms of positioning upstream of innovation and, and, and disruption so that they have a role to play, even if they're not the source of new breakthrough algorithms or the newest app, if they are the source of the raw materials that you need to build your iPhone, they're going to have a seat at the table as a result. And if they're able to develop coercive leverage and coercive leverage over um, explicitly over our supply chains, whether that's, you know, those those supply chains feeding uh, the F-35 or whether that's coercive leverage over major manufacturers um, like, like Apple that requires um, supplies to, to develop their products. Um, that's that's a big piece of what they're trying to achieve um, so that if and when they need coercive leverage, they can deploy it through these industrial channels um, that are a little bit different than the types of um, threats that the national security enterprise in the United States might be following most closely. Right. And how did their strategy with regards to the Earth's intercept with their broader plans, such as the Belt and Road Initiative, Made in China 2025, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, I think it's it squarely feeds directly into those those big bumper sticker labels of, of grand strategy that we see reflected from China. So Made in China 2025 is premised on this idea of becoming the, the world's workshop and um, building everything. If you have the uh, you know, dominance over the raw materials and these specific valuable ones like rare earth elements, then you're able to build the industries downstream that are producing goods made with them. Um, and then Belt and Road, I think it's a similar story where rare earths exist elsewhere out there in the world and um, the sort of charm offensive of, of going out and in, investing and um, trying to build partnerships with um, markets along this string um, just so happens to coincide with um, some raw materials that are of interest. So I think rare earth is you know, a part of, of both of those stories for sure. Given the strategic advantage that the CCP has with kind of all of these rare earth elements, is there any evidence that China or the CCP could use this power to coerce the United States or other potential countries? Has this been done before? Is this already happening? Yeah, so I think most famously um, in a dispute with Japan over the Senkaku Islands um, 12 years ago now, China um, de facto cut exports. um, And that was a pretty explicit signal and remains resonant in in Chinese thinking and and strategy today that, um, you know, cutting off export can be deployed. Um, So that launched, you know, a series of um, WTO trade cases that um, were resolved in, in some fashion, but ultimately um, didn't do much to reduce Chinese dominance um, or relevance of 
their ability to use um, production and export quotas to have the same effect today. Um, and I think more menacingly, China's been fairly, Chinese source has been fairly explicit um, over the past few years where it's looked like the United States um, from a policy perspective, from a national security perspective has been recognizing and trying to respond to this risk, making investments in the United States, talking about supply chain security. Um, Chinese sources have been fairly explicit to warn that um, this type of coercive leverage, the ability to cut off supply and the ability to cut off supply in a pretty um, specific and targeted fashion. So, you know, referencing F-35 production lines is a, a target that could be cut off from needed inputs. Um, so it remains, I think, a pretty salient and, and front burner thought from the, the Chinese strategic calculus that they have this leverage. They're willing at least to threaten to use it. And there's historical precedent that they are able and, and willing to use it. So to date, how, how has the U.S. dealt with this? Obviously, this is a, a big risk factor for the U.S. with F-35 that you just mentioned and so on. What are we doing to defend ourselves or just avoid having a conflict here? And uh, if we're not doing enough, in your opinion, what should we be doing? Yeah, so there's been a ton of a ton of progress made um, over the past few years. And I would just say up front that it's still um, early days in terms of restarting domestic industry, but we have mines that are operating. We have a handful of mines that are at uh, stages of nearing operation. Um, we have international partnerships increasingly with um, states like Australia that have similar concerns about Chinese dominance and also have healthy resource endowments. Um, there's been a lot of progress made at that front, but the, the real hurdle is having these projects, one, become economically viable, and then two, integrate into secure supply chains all the way through this process of mining down to um, separation and um, oxide and alloy development that can feed into rare earth permanent magnet development. Um, and similar case as we, as we map out the different critical minerals and battery metals. So um, we're at you know the first stage of extraction. We need to be addressing each of these other nodes. Um, we need to be encouraging cooperation and coordination with allies beyond um, just the ones that we're partnering with so far. Um, and I do think that there's um, a host of policy actions that, that urgently need to be taken. So I think addressing some quick fixes and in, in tax code that can incentivize increased investment make a lot of sense. I think prioritizing domestic or allied materials in um, supply chains that the U.S. government's purchasing from makes a lot of sense. And um, in doing so, eliminating waivers that allow companies to kind of kick the can down the road in terms of reorienting their own purchasing um, is sort of a, a, a necessary step that needs to be taken to um, be real about this and, and change how dollars are being allocated and also to send a signal that, that we are being serious about it. Um, the Defense Production Act has, can be ignited for, for this purpose and um, can also be used to effectively issue offtakes, which is a, a tool that the Chinese downstream sector uses to make extraction and processing projects 
um, more instantly economically viable. If, uh, if a project knows that the federal government of the United States is going to purchase some amount of their production, that's a strong signal that they can use to go to capital markets and to decrease the cost of capital for, for their production. So I think using the offtake tool within Defense Production Act is um, possibly a little, a little wonky, um, but something that could have an outsized impact because it is a strong signal for um, market players to, to use. Um, but then at the same time, with all of these steps, We've taken some of these steps in the past and China's control of the market that delivers pricing power means that if they change production quotas, they always have some degree of ability to um, change global market prices in a way that could drastically decrease um, revenues that would be going to early stage projects. So there needs to be some work done in concert with allies in concert with um, governments as well as private sectors to monitor for that type of market manipulation from the Chinese side and where possible to insulate um, our nascent projects along the spectrum of mining and processing and magnet development uh, against that type of manipulation that certainly I think is um, something that Chinese strategists sort of um, look to as a crutch that they can rely on if external secure supply chains do look like they're becoming more legitimate and credible threats to Chinese dominance. In, in your perspective, does the World Trade Organization actually have any leverage here? Like, are, are you optimistic that they can actually help to mitigate this threat uh, or not? I'm, I'm pretty pessimistic because what we've seen is, uh, you know, some historical WTO action that at the end of the day, if we just look at outcomes, hasn't produced a change in terms of how China behaves. So they relabel a, a, a policy support mechanism. Um, they build a, a new policy apparatus to impose production and export quotas, um, but effectively produce the same outcomes in terms of ability to manipulate prices and um, ability to use even more subversely their leverage over um, their export customers, whether in the United States or elsewhere. So I, I think it's a, a challenge that perhaps is beyond the scope of what WTO can resolve under its current state. If the U.S. were to invest internally on all the steps that you mentioned, uh, from starting from the mines all the way to the iPhone, would it be feasible? Does the U.S. actually have the natural endowments to, to be able to uh, solve this crisis by itself? And, and it, even if it's not, like how, how much could we actually help to mitigate this risk by just internal investments? I think the U.S. has a tremendous domestic endowment that could go a, a really far away um, in terms of extraction. The bigger challenge is when we get to separation and permanent magnet production. Um, so we don't have as much in terms of nascent investment and activity, human capital, um, IP ownership, at the point of producing metal alloys and um, permanent magnets. Um, so I think that's a, a soft spot that needs to be protected and um, invested in even more perhaps, and perhaps more directly by, by government forces until market forces are activated in that direction. But in terms of what we have in the ground, um, if, if we are serious about it and want to make it advantageous for the private sector to, to tackle this at scale, I think we do have a very strong endowment and then you can gradually work out toward the rest of North America where our um, 
neighbors to the north also have tremendous natural endowments that can be brought into play um, and then gradually to our European and other allies. And I think you can piece together a, a formidable domestic endowment and ultimately the a lot of the existing intellectual property that's most important um, is a portfolio of IP owned by Hitachi Metals, which at this point is owned by uh, American investors. So I think, you know, you have a lot of the right pieces that are in the United States or within the reach of American players that can be brought together, but it takes, you know, political will, it takes incentive setting, and it takes some protection from what will be certain to be um, an activated and asymmetrically focused Chinese adversary. So to wrap this up, Nathan, to what extent can the U.S. respond to this threat alone versus operating alongside allies in Asia and South America? You know, we can we can invest domestically and get pretty far, but um, to actually offset China's advantage, we have to work with our allies and partners. And um, certainly Japan, South Korea have tremendous advantages to, to bring to bear in this fight. The lithium triangle in, in Latin America is incredibly valuable as we look at critical minerals and battery metals. Canada, Europe um, also have tremendous endowments and expertise in, in extraction and oxide and, and alloy development. So I think we can't do it alone. Uh, we can get pretty far and I think we can send the right signal in terms of being an industrial leader, which is probably the the most powerful tool that the, Amer- that the Americans have is um, to be the, the city on the hill and send the right signal to our allies and partners. Um, but I think it, it's certainly right to assume that this has to be um, America plus, plus friends. It, it's not just something we'll do on our own. And I think the defenses that need to be enacted to protect against um, certain Chinese meddling in any efforts to develop independent supply chains has to be replicated with our allies and partners as well. Um, Because as one of us defects from a Chinese dominated supply chain, the um, incentive for bandwagoning toward China will increase for, especially for for smaller markets that um, may be attracted by market access in China or investment from China. So I think we have to both promote the development of secure supply chains and hand, hand in hand with our allies and partners, and we also have to protect them hand in hand with our allies and partners. Amazing. Well, Nathan, this has been such a fantastic overview. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Uh, we, we really appreciate it, and we're sure that our audience will as well. Thank you so much, guys. Really appreciate you taking the time. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at Village Global. Dot VC.